Nice to have you with us again today. Hi, Gary. By the way, I saw a movie long ago. I believe it was called The Serpent and the Rainbow. Was that based upon your book? It certainly was, although I don't necessarily want to take credit for it, Gary. You know, uh, Hemingway said that if you sell a book to Hollywood, you should start off in Arizona, uh, drive to the California state line, uh, throw your book over, and go back to Tucson and have a drink. Yeah, the movie was, uh, it's actually kind of an interesting story. When they first approached me, I was just a, a graduate student who had written my first book, and uh, the they assured me that the director would be Peter Weir, who was one of my favorite directors, um, and he had done Year of Living Dangerously and um, Gallipoli and Picnic at Hanging Rock, and I loved those films. And they told me they were going to offer Mel Gibson more money than he had ever received to play the lead role, which which I was intrigued by because that would mean instantly that it would be a sort of an A picture. My biggest worry from the start was that they would somehow, because the subject matter was... Uh, zombies and voodoo and the work I'd done in Haiti, that they would somehow turn this into a horror film, which, of course, is what they promptly turned out when it went ahead and did. And it ended up getting directed by Wes Craven, who'd done Nightmare on Elm Street, and starring um, a wonderful actor, Bill Pullman, um, who played me in the movie. I mean, the good news about the whole thing is that, um, you know, when Faulkner was asked what he thought about what Hollywood did to his books, he pointed to his bookshelf and he said, well, they don't do anything to my books. They're my books. And and, and the book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, um, continues to um, attract a pretty big audience. And, um, you know, the film is now, in, in a way, a, a kind of a, a footnote of Hollywood history. Good. Well, there's a certain hubris that has been nurtured into Western civilization during the course of its history. That is that the genius of the West is more evolved in how it manifests in saying it's doing the right thing when more often than not it's doing the wrong thing. We see this all the time. I did a whole series of, uh, three years ago called Intervention. What I did is I tracked in a five-hour special. Every time we say in the name of peace, democracy, and freedom, where we intervene in a country, it's never for peace, democracy, and freedom. We do just the opposite. So when I read your work, I believe that you have a very interesting way, and I'd like for you to elaborate on it, on how we equate intelligence and uh, our evolution with what we might call technological society. That's where we're at today. Almost in a Darwinian sense, let me just finish my thought here, now there are those such as Derek Jensen in the U.S. and folks like Paul Kingsnorth in the United Kingdom who would say that modern civilization has nothing to do with real human evolution as we know it, and is in fact the primary culprit in the environmental destruction of the planet. So would you address these two issues? Well, I think, I think the first thing to say is that all cultures and all places are famously ethnocentric, sort of loyal to their own interpretations of reality. Um, we see that with tribal societies where their name for themselves will translate as the people, the implication being that the other societies or cultures of the world are somehow non-human. And and so we tend not to think of our own culture as being just that, a culture, but somehow being divorced from culture, divorced from history, the sort of real world that moves inexorably forward. And these other peoples, these other cultures, quaint and colorful as they may be, 
are either failed attempts at being us or, or certainly aren't on the leading edge of history. And this, this idea goes back, certainly in the European tradition, um, to the birth of anthropology in the 19th century, where there was a sense that the various cultures of the world were like set theater pieces on some kind of um, uh, series of, uh, of dramatic plays that, that the cultures are sort of frozen in time at some sort of perceived level of advancement in some kind of evolutionary social Darwinian progression that invariably placed Victorian society at the apex of the pyramid that slipped out of the so-called primitives of the world. And part of this was the, the ethnocentricity of the era, but also it was because the one criterion um, that measured advancement from the so-called barbarian and the savage and the primitive to the civilized um, elegance of the strand in London was technological achievement. And with that single criterion, you could, you could build an argument that the Western experiment, brilliant and inspired in so many ways with the scientific methodology and its brilliant technology that has been spawned by that methodology, certainly is an extraordinary example of the human imagination brought into being in the material world and the world of culture. But if you, if you suddenly realize that um, uh, there are other criteria that you can use to measure the, the, the well-being and success of a, of a culture, whether that is a, a more uh, sustainable way of interacting with the natural world, whether it's more subtle ideas of the spiritual relationship between human beings and, and the, the divine or whatever, you suddenly realize that there is no real progression, and that the other, the other thing that's so fantastic that I think we mentioned, uh, discussed uh, last time I was on your show, is that that science has also created these great revelations, and amongst those is the fact that geneticists have proven it to be true that race is an utter fiction, and that the um, the genetic endowment of humanity is a single continuum that all human populations share essentially the raw, same raw intellectual capacity or potential. And so how that potential is, is used is simply a matter of choice. And whereas we may measure success by technological wizardry, uh, other societies like that of the Aboriginal people would measure it by not only the ability to sort of unravel the complex threads of memory inherent in a myth or to to understand the the extraordinarily baroque set of social relations in, in, in implicit in the kinship system of, of the Aboriginal people that took anthropologists almost two centuries to begin to figure out, um, or their primary focus on maintaining the earth through ritual traditions uh, exactly as it was at the time of the first dawning. If you, if you start realizing that there are different criteria to measure the success of cultures, you suddenly see that there is no sort of progression in, in the history of the world that invariably goes from the so-called primitive to the, to the civilized, as, as we would define it, there are just a series of options. And if you begin to sort of turn the anthropological lens um, and bring it into focus on our own um, worldview as a culture, again, you will see many wonderful things um, uh, and, and the achievements of science, particularly in the realm of medicine or technology, it is difficult to deny. Um, it, it's one of the great sort of great expressions of the human um, genius. But 
you can also look at our culture and you can say that you know our our, our social structure is, is is somewhat complex. Half our marriages end in divorce. We 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 have children who spend two or three years watching television by the time they're 18. We have an economic system that. Uh, you know, compromises the life support systems of the planet. In fact, our particular worldview um, has has created the, the the challenge of climate change, and that's the point I I made at great a great length when I was um, doing a series of blogs and reports from Copenhagen during the um, the climate conference uh, last last month uh, earlier in the month. Uh, is that we tend to think of climate change as being you know, humanity's problem. Well, it's not, it's maybe humanity's problem, but humanity didn't cause the problem. A, a relatively small subset of humanity caused the problem, and that, that, are, that is the industrial world as we know it. And so the point isn't to denigrate who we are. It, it's just to, with a certain level of humility, uh, recognize that we're not the paragon of humanity's potential and that these other peoples of the world uh, are not failed attempts at being us, so unique answers to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? This isn't to suggest that we should somehow mimic their ways any more than we should expect them to mimic our ways. It's not to suggest that they should be um, kept from the brilliance of scientific ingenuity any more than we would want to freeze them in some kind of zoological park of the mind. It's simply to have a to recognize that the the diverse voices of humanity all deserve a place at the council of wisdom and knowledge. They all have something quite specific to tell us about the nature of being alive. And again, the goal isn't to create separation. It's really to move forward and to ask, what kind of world do we want to live in? How do we find a way that all peoples can um, benefit from the, the, the genius of the modern era without that engagement, um, having to demand the death of who they are as a people. And I think this is where the whole um, discussion of, of, of culture, uh, of ethnography, of, of linguistic diversity, everything that anthropologists are so concerned about goes from the realm of, say, the academic or even from the area of human rights, really into the greater... Um, issue of geopolitical stability and survival, because one of the one of the real lessons of anthropology, and I think, and I say this often, Gary, to when I lecture to students or to to various um, audiences, that you know, if you're going to really um, distill everything that I would speak about or write about about the importance of culture, it's that it's not trivial. You know, it's not decorative. It's not the clothing we wear, the songs we sing, or even the prayers we utter. Um, it, it's fundamentally a body of ethical and moral values that each culture places around the individual to keep at bay the barbaric heart that history teaches us lies beneath the surface of virtually every human being in every culture. It's, it, it, it's this, sent, this, this group of sort of the blanket of moral and ethical values that allow us to make sense out of sensation, to find order and meaning in the universe that may have none. It's culture that allows us, as Lincoln said, to always seek the better angels of our nature. And if you want to know what happens when culture is lost and yet the individual survives a kind of shadow of their former self, often cast adrift into a a world of uncertainty um, and sometimes disaffection, you only have to look at the sort of points of, of chaos around the world 
because whether it's the shining path at the gates of Lima or, or the insanity of Pol Pot and the killing fields, um, the, the butt-naked brigades in Liberia, the systematic rape of women as, a, as an act of war in eastern Congo, or the uh, anarchy and chaos of Mogadishu and Somalia. I mean, all these places where civilization breaks down, um, uh, the consequences are really dire. And so civil, uh, culture is not just decorative. It's really the glue that allows us to be civilized, to thrive as a social species, and, and um, to live decent lives. And I, I, I think another way of, of thinking about this maybe is, is to, to stress this idea that different cultures create different options and, and different outcomes. I always wanted, for example, Gary, I lived for a long time with the nomadic people of Southeast Asia in Sarawak, the East Malaysian state of Sarawak, the northern third of Borneo. And the Penan were one of the most um, remarkable peoples I ever was with. And one of the things that's fascinating about nomadic societies in general is, first, the recognition that we were all once nomads, wanderers on a pristine planet. I mean, the Neolithic Revolution that brought us agriculture and sedentary life and surplus and hierarchy um, really was only 12,000 years ago. So for most of human history, our species has been nomadic, wanderers, hunters, and gatherers. And in those societies, different values are expressed. How, for example, do you measure wealth in a, in a culture in which there is not only no incentive to accumulate material possessions, there's an active disincentive to do so because ultimately everything has to be carried on your back. Everybody knows how to make everything. There are no real specialists. And everything can be made readily from raw materials um, easily um, found in the forest. So in a culture like that, how do you measure wealth? Well, with the Penan, wealth is very explicitly defined as a strength of social relations between people. Because if those relations fray and a band splinters, everybody has a smaller chance of eating that night. In these cultures, by the same token, uh, sharing is an involuntary reflex um, because you never know who will be the next to bring food to the table. I once gave a cigarette to a little um, old Penan woman in an encampment in the middle of the forest, and I watched to my astonishment as she opened the cigarette and this, uh, distributed the individual strands of tobacco equitably to every hut in the encampment rendering the product useless, honoring her obligation to share. When we took, uh, at their request, a number of Penan on a tour of North America to bring attention to the plight of their rainforest, it was astonishing to see these um, individuals who had never been in an urban space in their lives uh, arrive, in this case it was Vancouver, and nothing in the metropolitan area of Vancouver um, impressed them at all save homelessness in the streets. They could not understand uh, how people who had so much could allow some people to have so little. I mean, they really were a culture um, that lived by the adage that a poor man shames us all. So one of the, one of the kind of interesting kind of little theater pieces I, I once wanted to do was I had this idea to put a 16-year-old girl from Sarawak, a Penan um, young woman, uh, on a live video feed with a young girl in Beverly Hills in California. 
and I would ask just two questions. Name me everything you own. Well, the kid from Sarawak uh, would get through everything her entire community owned in uh, a, a, a few moments because, of course, they owned almost nothing. The kid from Beverly Hills would take six months just to uh, list what was in her own bedroom. But then you do the follow-up question, and you say, well, how many hours today did you spend with your mother and father? Well, the kid from Borneo wouldn't really know what that question means because she spends all day with her mother and her aunties and her grandmothers. That's how she learns to be a woman. Whereas a kid from Beverly Hills might say, you know, hours with my father, are you, are you out of your mind? I think I saw him last Tuesday when he went up to Burbank for that meeting. In other words, cultural, this isn't to denigrate our world. It's just to say that these choices that we make in culture have real consequences. And, and I, I think in the end, one of the reasons that anthropologists have always been celebrating the diversity of human spirit as, being, as brought into being by these unique cultures is that it makes for a much more interesting world. You know, people sometimes say to me, Gary, you know, what difference does it make to me in New York if some pastoral nomadic tribe in the Kaisut Desert of Kenya disappears? Well, the answer, it probably doesn't make any difference to you in, 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 in Brooklyn if that tribe disappears. But on the other hand, what difference does it make to the nomadic Mindili of Kenya if Brooklyn disappears? Probably nothing either. I would argue that the world in general would be a more impoverished place were either event to occur. Wade, I appreciate these insights. Uh, I'm going to ask you just one important question, but it's going to be a little detailed, so please be patient listening to my explanation of it, all right? I'm taking your point that cultures do matter and that there is only one race, the human race, and that if the poorest among us does not shame the wealthiest amongst us to pay attention to our priorities, then indeed we have lost our sense of the significance of society in each of its members. Now, when I look at the world today, and I'm only going to talk about the United States, I see that we wake up each day, many people, looking to create trivia only where you suggested trivia is not an essential element within other cultures, but meaningfulness of living mindful of that moment with the people and in the environment to respect the people, to share equally. In our society, sharing is something we have to be reminded of on a telethon day with Jerry Lewis or with a tsunami where our leaders uh, ask us to give freely, and which we do on both occasions. But then go out of the church where you've just given a solemn, uh, been given a solemn uh, reminder of the teachings of, let's say, Christ in a Christian church, and then do everything the rest of that week that is unchristworthy. Then look at television that demeans people, that is barbaric. The, the virtual reality shows that only depict the worst of human nature, the selfishness, the Carzazans or whatever those clowns that uh, uh, became famous for having a fat ass, and uh, the mindless Paris Hiltons, where that becomes a high art form, where people strive to be as vacuous as she, where politicians will sell all of their ethic for who's going to reelect them, which is 
those with money, with the people in our society who are the people given the authority to dictate what a society and a culture should represent, are almost universally corrupt, from the leaders of our church, the televangelist church, the philosophy of, of, uh, of making money so they can drive in Rolls Royces and fly in private jets, but their congregation could be eating at a soup kitchen, becomes not at all an issue to think about. When we have 50 million poor, uh, hungry people, 100 million poor people, when we do not care at all about sharing our wealth, at all, in fact, where the Republicans have been consistent in demeaning those who seek welfare, and yet they are completely supported by social, uh, socialized systems of welfare for the rich and the corporates, whether it's Cargill or the military industrial complex or an environmental company that we give $2 billion to to do a clean coal and oxymoron or give a vaccine company $3 billion to develop vaccines that are both worthless and dangerous. And no one finds that this is a paradox where if you look at what we're doing today, we do everything to disintegrate a culture in Brooklyn because we don't care about it. We don't care about the people. The only purpose a person in our society has today is if they can be valued as a commodity. Therefore, the commercialization of life. Medicine pathologizes it so it can commercialize it. And religions demonize it. You're born of sin. You'll live in sin. What nonsense that is. But as long as you get people to believe that you have a greater insight into the nature of their current and afterlife, you control them. Right now, the war on terror is the best example of that. We spend all of our money in fighting wars uh, and strategies of the 19th century instead of dealing with the, uh, the dysfunctional but maniacal terrorist of today. And hence, we can't win but are draining a self-strive, but other people are profiting from it. So when I look at all this, and I look at the fact that the only journalist, the only reporter in the Iraq war who was ever jailed as a terrorist, though a year later after being tortured, uh, he was set free without any charge ever being offered, was the one photographer who in the Battle of Fallujah showed a whole field of dead children uh, killed by Americans' uh, rifles and bombs. And for showing us that picture, instead of the kind of supercilious uh, Geraldo uh, uh, flag-waving super patriot, um, uh, America can do no wrong, even if there's collateral damage, look at the better good, who are always held as heroes. One guy told the truth, showed the truth of the consequences of our intervention and was jailed as a terrorist. And the average American goes to bed each night, not like a tribe in Papua New Guinea, but under the uh, illusion that they have protections and freedoms to be who they want to be and their culture to thrive. I see the disintegration of cultures, families, of whole essential elements of our society because they have relegated the future of their culture, the future of their destiny, to the most dysfunctional, maniacal, egotistical, hubris-driven, megalomaniacs, the politicians, and the corporatists. Your final thoughts, please. Take your time. I think that that's a, a a lot to comment on, Gary. I think, you know, one of, but I think what we would definitely both agree on is that, you know, if if somehow this ex- this essential exchange implicit in um, globalization um, and the idea of of the world being flat and so on, really was an exchange whereby peoples from throughout the world could trade in their traditions and emerge into a world where they truly 
um, were able to achieve the level of affluence to which they may in fact sincerely aspire was the world into which they might be moving this kind of western industrial um, culture of ours truly an exemplar in terms of um, human qualities and, 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 and um, a, a kind of way of life, then you could sort of see it being uh, a trade that might be both attractive and, and in, in a sense, um, irresistible. But part of what you were suggesting is that without in any way um, kind of invoking uh, polemical diatribes, I think you can look at a place like the United States for all its blessings and all of its assets and say, well, you know, we do consume two-thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs. We, we live relatively isolated lives of, you know, getting up in, and commuting, uh, in some cases, great distances to office buildings where we look behind glass on our way to work. We look at glass all day at work. We then return home to look at glass on the box of the TV until dark, and we do it all over again. You know, if, if, if this kind of model of materialistic um, affluence truly yielded a kind of transcendent happiness, uh, it would be a lot uh, more difficult to, to suggest that the seduction of the modern may not be the best thing for people. But what I find is that if, if I look around me in my society, uh, where I see many wonderful things, but I also do see um, cultures of isolation, um, families living scattered all across the country. I see children who spend uh, years watching television as opposed to discovering the wonders of the natural world. I see, you know, grandparents shoveled off into old folks' homes um, like so much used furniture. Uh, and so what I, what I see in America, again, is many wondrous things, but I also see a kind of tyranny of ideology. I mean, the only way you can sort of um, enjoy being an American is to have an enormous sense of humor. I mean, it's, it's sort of like Oscar Wilde said, it's the one country to go from birth to decadence without passing through civilization. And when Mahatma Gandhi was asked what he thought of American civilization, he said, I think it would be a good idea. I mean, the, 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 the wonderful thing, however, is that America's always been like that. I think America in particular has always been the best of all things and the worst of all things. If you go back to the 19th century and you think of the, the, the controversy that buffeted someone as iconic as Abraham Lincoln, when you look at the, the machinations of the stock market in, in any number of uh, economic um, bubbles and Ponzi schemes that littered the 19th century, nothing has really changed. But, but on the other hand, you know, this is a country that is capable of remarkable things. Um, you know, when I was over in Copenhagen, I was reflecting on, on you know, the, the climate change debate, and, and it's worth just mentioning something about that. I mean, because the scientific consensus on climate change is really overwhelming. So either the scientists are all wrong, which, if true, would call into question our entire kind of cult of the modern and the faith that we have had in scientific methodology over the last 300 years, or they're right. And if, if they're right uh, and we do nothing about climate change, the results could be truly um, cataclysmic. If they're right and we mitigate the impact of climate change, the cost, according to most estimates, 
would be at most 3% of GDP. Now, in World War II, the United States, without blinking, spent 38% of GDP to defeat the Japanese Empire and the Nazi regime. So 3% of GDP is not an unprecedented amount of investment to deal with a truly global challenge. Now, on the other hand, if the scientists are wrong and we do nothing, well, then nothing happens. And if they're wrong and we still mitigate and still spend 3% of GDP, and it turns out, which I'm sure is not the case, that the scientists have all been wrong on this entire consensus, the worst outcome is that we make a better world, a cleaner world, a technologically more integrated world. We move away from carbon technologies, which, however you um, define them, are, are problematic for the biosphere. And we move into a cleaner world of energy. So, you know, I can't really see there being any downside to mitigation and um, moving forward to address this problem. And that's where the American genius can come into play, is that, that this is still a country where, where, where innovations and in, in the kind of the chaos of the marketplace can yield the kinds of technological breakthroughs that this serious problem does demand. So I tend to be less pessimistic about the prospects of this country. I mean, you know, if you look at the sort of status of the country in 1938, still struggling despite all of Roosevelt's interventions to escape the, the misery of the Depression. Uh, in the last year of, of peace, this country made 3.5 million automobiles. In the first year of war, it made a total, and not just the first year of war, but the next four years of the war, it made a total of 135 automobiles. And instead, it devoted itself to building the ships and the planes and the tanks that were desperately needed to defeat the fascist um, threat I, to the world. I would agree with that, Wade. My concern would be not 1938. I would go back to 1933. That's where I would begin my analysis of our prospects for a happy, positive future, and not 1933 in the United States, 1933 in Nazi Germany, and 1928 in fascist Italy, because it was from fascist Italy that the Nazis and Hitler got his idea of how to control people. And I'm of the belief that unless we understand the nuance of history as well as the specific example, we will repeat it. Different concept, different people, different outcome, but it will not bode well. I am not an optimist about our political uh, capacity for change, nor am I an optimist about the quality of people who are demanding that we follow them. I am an optimist about the capacity for individuals to change, for individuals to stop eating meat and, and animal products, to stop um, uh, using the air conditioner and driving the way they are, and to stop buying things they don't need so they can actually make a positive impact long before, decades before the administration or special interests will do something. I'm I'm positively inclined that people will begin to inform themselves in a way that will empower them. I'm also positively informed that they will understand how real democracy works by working together with others to create a community of actualizers and those that are organizers. And I'm also very positively motivated that we become the media. We create with blogs and online postings and disseminating information. We create a 
a virtual reality that supersedes the controlled, canned, and packaged propaganda of the mainstream and cable networks so that we do go forward without exploitation. So I think, that, I think that's already happening. I mean, I think that's is. what the Internet is really. It's become, emerging as a kind of global campfire that we gather around. And it's been, incidentally, Gary, a tremendous tool of empowerment and liberation for indigenous people throughout the world uh, because on the Internet communication is possible with other isolated parts of the globe where people discover that their, their, their efforts, their struggles are not um, their own alone, that there are patterns of, of resistance that um, uh, are found around the world and, and that the same things that are threatening people in the Amazon are threatening people in the high Arctic. And there's an incredible kind of solidarity in the indigenous people's movement that has grown up around this. I mean, I, I think one of the things about culture, and I try to talk about in The Wayfinders, the, this new book, is that, you know, we ignore the lessons of culture at our peril. I mean, if you go back, for example, uh, to 9-11, I mean, one of, the, you know, one of the great things that presidents have done in this country's history during times of crisis is that when fear... Re- you know, is in the is in the population. The presidents have tried to quell it. You know, Lincoln, famously asking us to look to the better angels of our nature in the middle of a civil war. Uh, Roosevelt saying, "There's nothing to fear but fear itself." During the crisis of the depression, uh, I think what happened in 9/11, and I think any historian will record this, is that rather than quelling the fear the 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 the, the wave of fear um the administration at the time fueled it uh for its own kind of political ends and the the idea that we could go into iraq um in the way that we did uh, um unaware of the ethnic um challenges of the area i mean the fact that the coalition provisional authority um the American civilian force that numbered in the thousands that were sent over to solve the problems of a part of the world that was 4,000 years old, the very fact that 65% of the um, cadre of the coalition provisional authority had to get passports for the first time just to go to Baghdad suggests the naivete and and even cynical naivete, if you will, of, of the effort. How could those young Americans have been expected to solve the problems of never left their own country. And I think that what I found fascinating, for example, in the immediate wake of 9-11, the American Anthropological Association, the the biggest sort of professional body of anthropologists in the world, uh, came together in Washington, and there were 4,000 anthropologists in the city in the immediate wake of the biggest story of culture that any of them or the country itself would have to deal with. And the entire gathering um, earned a single line in the Washington Post in the gossip section that basically said the nutcases were in town again. And it was hard to know who was more remiss, the, the, um, the profession itself for not having the ability to reach outside of itself to bring the fundamental lessons of anthropology to, to the light and to, to, to the public, or the government um, and the media for not listening to the one academic profession who actually could have answered in a very profound way that question that was then on everybody's mind, why do they hate us? And uh, to me, that was a kind of a, a, a sign of that 
left me filled with foreboding. And it's been interesting in, in the in the ten years since nine eleven, uh, or the um, uh, you know, we we not quite ten years. We're getting on to ten years. Um, I don't think I've ever seen an anthropologist interviewed on any of the mainstream. Um, you haven't radio or television. You know, every conceivable self-proclaimed terrorist terrorism pundit has been on um, talking away about this and that. And as Jerry Brown famously said, "How do you declare war on a technique? How do you declare war on terrorism? How do you? What is a war on terror?" And I, I and I think that. Fundamental. Wade, Wade, we're out of time. Could you come back and continue with your thoughts and the other anthropologists' thoughts on sure. understanding terrorism and why people are angry at us around the world and have been for a long time? I'd be happy to do that. Have you watched the movie uh, Hearts and Minds? I haven't seen that, Gary. Would you watch it if you have a chance? Yeah. It, it's about the Vietnam War, and it, it's, I think, with Daniel Ellsberg, and I feel it's the best film ever done on the Vietnam War. You know, there, I did see that. There, did you see that? Remember the scene in there where the guy says, I was flying so high that I never heard the shouts and screams. I never had to see a person burned by napalm. I never had to see the faces of the villagers after we destroyed their homes, and therefore he felt no remorse. I want to discuss why we can't forget the people that we will never see, never knew, never knew existed, but we caused their lives to be impacted because we did not care about them. Let's talk again in the near future with Part 3. That sounds great, Gary. Thank you very much. Dr. Wade Davis, author of a very important book, The Wayfinders, will have Part 3 with Conversations with Remarkable Minds in the very near future.